Blue states and blue cities will have to change or they will die. It's the most important story in America. Record government spending, spiraling prices at the grocery store, the third bank takeover in five weeks, and inflation we're still trying to tame. Today, we hear from Steve Moore, the well-known Wall Street Journal columnist, author, and distinguished fellow of economics, about what this means, bottom line, to every American who's dealing with it today and fearing what it means for tomorrow. From Ballard Studios, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint part. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Steve, welcome to the show. You know, you must never run out of material to talk about or write about. I mean, think of everything that's going on with the economy and everything people want to know. Economists are like weathermen. Nobody pays attention to weatherman when the weather is nice, but they watch the weather channel when there's bad weather. And, you know, we've got a very precarious economy right now. People are very nervous about it. There are some strengths in the economy, but a lot of worrisome signs right now. And I think people are nervous. 70% of Americans think the economy is headed in the wrong direction. And they have an instinct that everything we're doing right now is wrong for the country. Well, Stephen, speaking about the economy and bad weather, a lot of people were expecting that there would be a recession this year. Do you have a forecast? Do you have a belief as to whether we're going to have two quarters of negative growth? And then additional question to that is, how would you rate the performance of the Federal Reserve Bank over the last 36 months? Well, there were a lot of economists who predicted that we'd have a recession in the first quarter of this year, and they were wrong. Actually, you know, the economy grew. It didn't grow by much, but it grew by 1%. That's not a recession. Uh, the job market is very strong right now. You still have 9 million job openings and 5 million people looking for jobs. So that if you're looking for a job, this is a good time to be doing it. But so many other signs are showing weakness. I mean, you still have real wages that have fallen by about three or $4,000 for the average family since Biden took office because price has been out of control. We're running a two, almost a $2 trillion annual deficit. The national debt is headed to $50 trillion. When I first came to Washington, we had a $2 trillion debt, and now we're headed to $50 trillion. These are what a banana republic does, and we need to really get our fiscal house in order. We have to start paying our bills. We have to get growth. Well, there's a big thing that is happening right now, as you know, on Capitol Hill. It's whether or not we raise the debt ceiling. What do you think is really going to happen when we get into the rough and tumble of having to come up with a final decision that includes, of course, a White House that may be very difficult to move off certain principles? I guess their only principle is right now is to grow the government as much as they can. And, you know, I got started in this business in the mid-1980s when Ronald Reagan was still president. And so there have been about eight times in the last 35 or 40 years when we've used the debt ceiling as the leverage to get control of our budget. So there's nothing new here. The only thing new is we've got a president who says he's not going to negotiate. So I'm fully in support of what Kevin McCarthy has done here. There's nothing that's unreasonable in these conditions. He wants to have a 1% cap on government spending. Mm -hmm. He wants to force people to work if they're going to get welfare benefits. That's something 80% of Americans favor. 
He wants to get rid of this debacle of student loan forgiveness so that deadbeats who don't pay their student loans can put that cost on American taxpayers. That Does that make any sense, by the way? No. I mean, no. somebody's got to explain that one to me, how someone would take out a loan and then expect <laughs> you and I to pay for it. I mean, really, it just defies logic. Um, there's uh, also a feature to re-energize America's energy policy so we can produce more energy here at home, get rid of $350 billion green energy slush fund. These are just obvious things. So one of the most important ones is not to give the IRS $80 billion more money to hire 87,000 more IRS agents. I know the first person they're going to audit is me. So um, I think that, um, you know, I saw the other day that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said, oh, my gosh, Congress has to pass a debt ceiling bill. Guess what? The Republicans did pass a debt ceiling bill. But a lot of the new members that came in recently on the Republican side of the fence, Steve, as you know, we're very, very insistent on getting control of spending. There have to be concessions on spending, don't there, for there actually to be a compromise solution that wouldn't push us into a possible default? Well, first of all, this is an important point you're making. Mm. Can you imagine for a moment that you were running a business? And let's say the last couple of years you were losing money. So you went to the bank and said, you know, I need a loan or a line of credit because I'm losing money. What's the first question the banker would ask you? What's your plan to get out of debt? Uh, now, if you said, well, I don't have a plan, you think you're going to get a loan? <laughs> what Speaker Kevin McCarthy was able to do by passing that debt limit increase really takes away the political yes. strategy that Janet Yellen and the Biden administration thought they were going to run against the Republicans. Yes. They were going to point the finger at the Republicans yeah. and say that they weren't able to, they, they're they're the roadblock, but now it's the shoes on the other foot. So we'll see how that plays out. That's a great point. By the way, I mean, in this past week, you know, Democrats are extraordinarily frustrated because what Kevin McCarthy very shrewdly has done is put Democrats in a box with the walls collapsing on them. And so I don't want Kevin McCarthy keep saying, please negotiate, Mr. President. If he doesn't want to negotiate, you know, it's an old saying. This was me in high school. If you ask a girl out three times and she says no, she probably doesn't want to go out with you, right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you stop asking him to negotiate. He doesn't want to negotiate. Fine. That's his prerogative. He's president. There have been several or at least three significant bank failures in recent weeks. And I read, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, that the size of the three banks that have failed are larger than the size of the banks that failed in the financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009. What's your take on this? Was that the right thing to do, that these banks should be taken over by these other large banks? And how would you rate the performance of the administration on this banking crisis? We all remember what happened in 2008 when the mortgage industry went bust. And so what Biden wants to do with these new rules, I find this to be absolutely horrendous, is people who have a good credit score and people who have high down payment loans have to pay more for their loans to subsidize people who make low down payment loans with a bad credit score. <laughs> Again, that's a head scratcher. You got to explain to me how that's going to make for. So this idea of redistributing income from people who can pay their mortgages to people who can't, I find that to be financially reckless. You recently wrote a column for the Wall Street Journal talking about the great migration of people, wealth and jobs from blue states to red states. I want to play you a clip and get your opinion about what that really means. And is it permanent? Good morning, Joe. Well, new stats from the IRS showing that income migration not only accelerated, but doubled during the pandemic from high tax 
to low-tax states. New York losing a net $25 billion in income from taxpayers who moved in 2021. California losing $29 billion. That was triple the losses that they saw before the pandemic. Now, the big winner, no surprise here, was Florida. Florida gained over $39 billion in income. That's more than twice their pre-COVID levels. Texas was a distant second, adding $11 billion. More than half of that coming from California. Is there a tipping point that we may be reaching where that migration, which has happened principally over the last three to five years, that that becomes irreversible? Yeah, so this is the biggest story in America that people aren't paying enough attention to. The red states are bleeding the blue states dry. The one thing that no liberal can explain, they can't explain this, is if your policies are so great, why is everyone leaving New York, California, Illinois, Connecticut, New Jersey, and other blue states? They don't have an explanation for that. Wait a minute. I thought the whole idea of liberalism was to create a worker's paradise and everybody's leaving. Right. And any geographical area's best asset is its people. I mean, how do you get people to leave California? California is the most beautiful place on the planet. Exactly. And yet people are leaving. Well, maybe one reason is you have a 14% tax rate in California and a 0% tax rate in Florida or Texas. So blue states and blue cities will have to change or they will die. They have to change or they will die. These states like New York and California and New Jersey will continue to decline if they don't reverse their policies. If you're the governor of California or Illinois or New York or these other states that are losing people and jobs, is there anything you can actually do now to reverse that that will completely violate everything they've talked about and stood for before? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, so that's why what's happened in Chicago is so tragic. You can't save a city if the people don't want to save it themselves, right? You know, no matter what you and I say, if the people in Chicago don't want to fix things, then the city can't be fixed. But I remember New York pre-Rudy Giuliani. The Mm. city was a disaster. And Rudy Giuliani came in, and within four years, he completely fixed that city. That's why they call him America's mayor. I mean, what he did was amazing. And you could see it every time you would go to New York. I'd go to Manhattan because I was working at the Wall Street Journal at the time. Mm -hmm. You could see week after week after week things improving. Fewer homeless people on the street. Fewer people defecating on the sidewalks. Less graffiti. Businesses that felt safe. Restaurants that were opening up. A vibrancy in the city. So, yes, leadership matters. Can Chicago save itself? Yes. Can New York save itself? Yes. Can California save itself? Yes. But it's up to them. It's not too late to fix these cities. And I think in the end of the day, you're going to see some change in leadership in these places. I hope it comes soon. Steve, I want to ask you about China. You've recently opined about the U.S. policy or the current administration's policy towards China being very focused on climate change, while China is very focused on its economic growth. Well, look, China is now the new Soviet Union, right? This is the greatest danger on the planet right now is China. And they're becoming more militant. They are involved in very predatory economic practices. They want to take over the world. Uh, I'm worried about Taiwan. I'm worried about Hong Kong. I'm worried about the places around them. That means, you know, how are we going to beat China? Well, the same way we beat the Soviet Union, we outgrew them. We became so prosperous that they couldn't keep up with us. We have a president now who doesn't name one thing that, that Joe Biden has done to increase American prosperity. Seriously, I can't think of one. And I didn't agree with everything Trump did, but 
every decision he made was a part of putting America first. And Trump did that. We made American energy independent. We got our border under control. We deregulated. We cut taxes to bring money back. This stuff isn't complicated. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. And so Biden comes in and he says the greatest threat to our economy is climate change. No, the greatest threat to our economy is socialism. So we have the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, of course, was the former chair of the Reserve. And they've been in the news, obviously, for better part of a year or more. We wait nervously as they, they meet, thinking the next interest rate increase will hit. And we're asking, are they doing the right thing? And at what point do you start to measure job loss and loss of growth up against controlling inflation? Growth reduces inflation. It doesn't increase inflation. As, as my old buddy Art Laffer would say, if the economy produces more apples, the price of apples falls. It doesn't rise. So hmm. stop, you know, I'm not saying you, but people out there who who believe in this idiotic Phillips curve notion that growth causes inflation. That's idiotic. It's the opposite. You know, under Reagan, we had the greatest growth in 50 years and we had no inflation. So, you know, we put millions of people into jobs and when people are working, they reduce the prices of goods and services. They don't raise them. So we need growth. Absolutely. I think what the Fed needs to do more, most importantly, is to try to persuade the Congress and the president and the American people that if we don't get this government debt and spending under control, there's nothing the Fed can do to reverse the decline that this is going to cause. And so we've had $6 trillion of new spending, $6 trillion. That's more money than we spent on World War II, for God's sake. And what have we got for it? Nothing. But windmills, really? So I think that the villain here is not the Fed. The villain here is Biden and the Democrats who are trying to spend our country into oblivion. And they are practicing something called modern monetary theory. Do you know what that is? Yeah, modern monetary theory basically says that you can spend and borrow as much right. as possible without any consequences. Exactly. I mean, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right. And yet you've actually got some PhDs from second rate universities, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, you know, all we have to we can just spend. you summarized it well. We can spend and spend and borrow and borrow. And as long as we're the world reserve currency and the rest of the world's ready, ready to lend us money. Well, that's like, you know, saying the more on debt I am, the better off I am financially. By the way, interest payments on the debt, did you know this? Within five or six years, are going to be higher than the amount of money we spent on our entire national security. Right. It's, it's insanity. I thought I read somewhere recently that the interest on the debt has either exceeded or will soon exceed $1 trillion a yes. year. Debt in, uh, in and of itself is not a bad thing. I mean, I borrowed to buy my house, but I have an asset. You know, I have the house. What do, what do we have for all this money we borrowed? Seriously. I mean, we have nothing. What would you say is the number one concern that you have about the economic future of America? I guess I'd say that we are um, graduating from our schools, kids who can't read and write. Mm. It is the greatest, like, this is the greatest threat to our national security. Uh, I think school choice and uh, giving every parent an opportunity to go to the best school they can is the most economic and most national security important and the most important civil rights issue of our time. You cannot graduate kids from high school who can't read or write, can't read the diploma. And that's what we're doing. Uh, and, and, and the people who are being victimized by this are minorities. And what's the old saying from the Negro College Association? A, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. So if we don't do something about our schools, I, don't, I think America's sunk. 
we got to do this. And the, the good news is that I want to end this on an optimistic note. We're going to probably have a very robust school choice program now in 12 states at the end of this year. And by the way, they're all red states. So here's another example where kids in red states are going to be getting a good education. Mm-hmm. Kids in blue states are going to get a crappy education. Well, you know, Steve, I wish that every American could just pull up a chair and have you talk about the five or 10 most important economic issues uh, bearing on the country today and learn. And you should be applauded for all of the work you've done through all the years. First of all, thank you for those kind words. But, you, you know, we've been talking for the last 30 minutes. Is there anything that I've said that isn't common sense? No, <laughs> no. That's the thing. I mean, this I don't feel like I'm some kind of brilliant person. I'm not. Just my wife. She doesn't think I'm brilliant. <laughs> uh, I'm just, these things are very simple, obvious concepts. And the only people who seem to do not understand them are PhDs in economics who don't seem to understand the very basics that, that we've been talking about. This is not complicated about how we turn our country around, which is why I love Trump. He just preached common sense. And you know what? The American people adopted it. And I think, you know, who knows? He may be back in the White House in, in a year and a half. People like you and Steve Forbes and Art yeah. Laffer, you have not just the courage of your convictions, you're you're telling Americans a different side of the same story that they thought they had heard a hundred times before and took for granted. And now they're opening their eyes all over again uh, to things they didn't realize. I hope you're right, because we really can't wait. We've got to fix these problems. It's just, you know, they keep talking about income inequality. That's because a lot of the policies the left has put in place are holding the poor down and Mm -hmm. denying them the opportunities that every American deserves. Steve, keep writing, keep speaking out, and keep doing what you're doing. We really appreciate Thanks, the time guys. you spent with us today. Right, thank Wonderful you. to be with you. Well, Adam, uh, Stephen Moore is many things, but he's definitely passionate about oh. the issues that he's speaking about, which is, I don't know, I want to say a little bit unusual for an economist. I've heard a lot of economists and people right. with financial background right. speak, and uh, usually it's more interesting to, to watch the paint dry on a wall, but not with Stephen. He's uh, well-spoken on a variety of issues from China to the debt ceiling and the debt limit to the economic situation with growth and inflation. So I thought that was really a pretty, in a very short period of time, we covered a lot of ground with him. Growth. You know, it seems intuitive when you say growth that it would lead to more inflation because we've been, we've heard that a thousand times, right? right? And we're still told that time and time again. But what he's saying is it's just the opposite. You grow your way out of inflation. And he gave that great comparison, the great metaphor, rather, about apples, right? right. I think he's right. I mean, I, I really never heard it explained that way. I was with the herd thinking, oh, my God, all this growth, right? But I think he's right. That's how, if you look in the through history, that's how it kind of worked. And it certainly worked during the Reagan years. Well, yeah, and he mentioned that. And I thought uh, it was interesting because I asked him about, you know, what's going to happen? Are we going to have a recession? Are we going to have two quarters of negative economic growth? And he said, look, there's some positive signs in the economy. It's a great time to be looking for work. But there's also some signs of weakness. So I think that's the anxiety that he alluded to that a lot of Americans are feeling about the direction the economy is going is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of mixed signals coming from the economic indicators. He's very big on the word spending. Mm-hmm. And if you want to expand it, government spending, right? right? I think there's a difference between government spending and government investing. And what he was saying is, what he asked us is, name one thing 
that's happened over the last couple of years that really moved the needle positively and powerfully on the economy. And I think I was looked at you, actually. <laughs> I think we're both stumped for an answer. Right. I wanted to have an answer. I didn't have a ready answer. And he's saying, look, if you want to really get a grip on this, you got to address the most difficult issue there is. That is the elephant in the room. It's not a Republican right. elephant. It's an American elephant. Right. He made the point that, look, there's nothing wrong with debt. He borrowed money to buy his home, but you know he had an asset. I mean, I think that's the issue uh, right now is we're taking on a lot of debt and are we really getting the most bang for our buck for all the debt that we're taking on and we're passing on to generations. And I, I think I'm pretty sure I saw recently that the current amount the U.S. government pays on interest on debt is exceeded $1 trillion. So that's $1 trillion we're spending not on education, not on keeping America safe and secure, not on Homeland Security, uh, not on Social Security, not on Medicare, mm -hmm. but on interest on money that we've borrowed in the past. And that's pretty remarkable. His last comment had to do with education. What's the biggest issue? What's the thing that would keep you up at night? It's the education of America's children that he sees that as the most critical future asset we've got. Right. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, we can't afford in this global and competitive environment to be graduating seniors from high school who can't function at that grade level that aren't prepared to work or to go on to higher education. And it is interesting because we didn't talk about education the entire interview with him. And we asked him the one thing that kept him up and he said it was our educational system. And he also pointed out that a lot of states, red states, are instituting school choice programs. I know Florida just passed earlier this year a very significant school choice program. And that kind of continues, which I think is an interesting point that he made at the beginning, this divide that's taking place within America between the red states and the blue states, their economic approaches, which continues to apparently get worse. Unfortunately, partisans may cheer if you're on the red side of the line, right, when this migration's happening and blue states are, are taking a, a lot of gas. But frankly, it we shouldn't root for that. Right. We should root for all of America to be good. We should root for California and Illinois and New York to do well for themselves. And when he referenced New York City, I was there in the second part of Rudy Giuliani as mayor, when we worked on his campaign, there was a sea change that happened there because one leader stood up and said, we're not going this way, we're going that way. And when it started to work, everyone followed. Right. And you asked him the question, is it too late to save these cities? And he said, no, absolutely not. Right. They can institute policies that allow them to have the growth and the prosperity and the help for workers in terms of cre job creation that is happening right now in the red states. So you're absolutely right. It's uh, something that we all should hope as a country that those areas improve and that there isn't the migration. But until the people, and he made the point about Chicago, they had a choice between a more moderate uh, mayor and a more leftist mayor, much more leftist mayor, and they chose the leftist mayor. So the people, that's part of democracy. You know, the people get to choose what they want. And if they continue to choose that, then, you know, they'll deal with the consequences of that. And the same goes for the red states. Well, I think it's fair to say that DraftKings is laying odds on what comes <laughs> back first, the Chicago Cubs or the city of Chicago coming off the ropes. Uh, another great episode fascinating guest. Great guest. Uh, very fortunate to have him. Great show. Don't miss future episodes by following us on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platforms, or go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe for free.